Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Imagine for a moment you have no food and no water. Now here in Texas, we've been in a drought for the past several years. There's been very little rain. In fact, we got a little sprinkling yesterday, but none at all last month. Since I moved down here to the Austin area almost six years ago now, Lake Travis, the place where most of us get our drinking water, has dropped over 30 feet in depth. If you think about it, that's a mind-boggling amount of water when you consider how wide and how long that river channel is behind that dam. Millions, if not billions, of cubic feet of water are gone, used by people for various purposes, evaporated by the heat, or allowed to flow downstream to provide water to others along the Colorado's path. Even so, I don't think that too many of us have had to go thirsty very much, or at least not dangerously thirsty. Those who are on water systems connected to Lake Travis have always had water available to them. And even if you get your water from a well or from some other source, not too many of us have run out. There's always something for us to drink besides that, too, in order to survive, whether it be juice or milk or bottled water or soda. Now imagine that you have no food and nothing to drink, and you're also stuck out in the middle of a desert wilderness. No matter how hard you look, there's nothing available. Things are getting very, very uncomfortable and may very soon become desperate. And to make matters worse, you're responsible for the lives of a great multitude of people. You're their leader. Without you, they're helpless and lost. They're depending upon you for their daily survival and for getting them to a place of safety and of plenty. They're constantly getting frustrated with you, angry with you, complaining about you. And to top it all off, you're being accused of being wrong about what you're supposed to do and you hadn't properly understood what God had said. The argument is bitter, and the argument is long. What, did you think I was talking about Moses? <laughs> he wasn't the only one who struggled in the wilderness, who suffered from hunger and thirst, and who is complained against by the people whose lives are in his hands. And he was tempted to do something different than what God wanted as well. But today's lessons are actually about two men being tempted in the wilderness. One, Moses, was a reluctant leader. He didn't really want the job. He'd had power once before, power over earthly things, power granted to him by an earthly king, Pharaoh. But Moses had misused it and killed an Egyptian and had to flee from the presence of a king to keep from being killed. He probably would have been quite happy to live out the rest of his life on that mountainside, herding the sheep and the goats. But that's not what God wanted, and that's not what God's people needed him to do. It's quite a bit different with Jesus, isn't it? The only begotten Son of God had willingly set aside his power and his position, seated at the throne of the Heavenly Father. He didn't have to flee because he had done nothing wrong. 
but he wasn't content because something was drastically amiss in the world. And so he voluntarily left the king's presence. Not to avoid being killed, but rather to suffer and die for the sins of others. Along the way, he had to endure not only the temptations of the devil, but also the constant complaining about how he does things. Disrespect from those whom he has created and the rebellion of our discontent. Moses and Jesus. The greatest Old Testament prophet and the perfect prophet of all time. Each given their tasks to bring God's people from bondage and slavery to freedom, from despair to hope, from want and poverty to abundance and richness, from death to life. In this year's Advent midweek messages, we are going to draw comparisons between an imperfect Old Testament prophet, priest, or king and the eternal perfect prophet, priest, and king, Jesus. But it is not just about contrasting those historical figures and their struggles and their failures and comparing them against the perfection of our Lord and Savior. It's really about looking at our own struggles and failures too and remembering that it is we do need Jesus every bit as much if not more than those we hear about in the lessons or anyone else for that matter. After all, if you look objectively at your life from a rational human perspective, it's quite likely that you would not be judged by the world as being more righteous or more faithful or more devoted than Moses, or for that matter, Eli and David, who we'll hear about in the next two weeks. In fact, you'd probably be judged a lot more severely and harshly by your peers. But if you look at Moses' actions in today's first reading, there is much there to admire. When the people come to him and to Aaron complaining about the lack of water, Moses does not lash out at them. We don't hear him telling them to shut up and leave him alone. He doesn't pull rank and shout, hey, I'm in charge here, and if you don't like it, that's too bad. No, Moses keeps quiet. He hears them out. And then he retreats with Aaron to the tent of meeting to ask the Lord what to do. And there... He doesn't even begin to presume, like you and I often do, to suggest to God what it is God ought to do for us. But God is with Moses, and so he gives him a solution in three simple steps. First, to take his staff, his walking stick. Second, to gather the people together. And third, to speak to the rock and to tell it to give the people water. When it comes time to carry out this plan, though, Moses has a bit of a brain hiccup. Or is it an ego attack? He had taken his staff, just as the Lord commanded. He had gathered the people, just as the Lord commanded. But then instead of simply speaking to the rock as the Lord had said to bring forth water, Moses taunted the people. He almost dares them to doubt another miracle. Moses knew full well that God was with him, but he claims the glory for himself. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock, he says, meaning him and Aaron. He also didn't trust that God's word was sufficient to accomplish what the people needed either, and he didn't preach that to them in this instance. 
Instead, he adds the dramatic flourish of striking the rock with his staff. Yet in spite of this disobedience, Moses is still, or God is still faithful to Moses and to his chosen ones. Even in the midst of Moses' lack of faith, the Lord still provides the water to his chosen ones so that they might survive, so that they might continue their journey and proclaim his glory in their own time and to the world beyond. But the worldly consequences of this disobedience for Moses are devastating. For allowing himself to be tempted to do things his way and not in accordance with God's word, he was not allowed to lead Israel all the way into the promised land. Jesus' time in the wilderness was nowhere near as long as Moses. Forty days rather than forty years. But it's safe to say that he faced just as much adversity physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Satan constantly looked for any opportunity to trip Jesus up, to make him unsuitable to stand in your place as the living and dying sacrifice. The devil appealed to Jesus' physical needs first, tempting him to provide himself food. And then he appealed to Jesus' ego, tempting him to indulge in a self-important sense and to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple just to dare God to save him. And finally, Satan tried to get Jesus to focus his spirit on worshiping something other than the one true God. Body, mind, and spirit. All tempted, all challenged. But Jesus did not come into this world as the incarnate Son of God so that he could tend to his own needs, or his wants, or his desires. His purpose was not to call attention to himself for his own glory, but by the Spirit to point people to the Father who sought to be reconciled to the world. You see, that's the sort of perfect and selfless love that God has, even within the blessed Holy Trinity. Each of the three persons directs us to the other two so that we might know them all and grow in faith. At every turn, Jesus used God's Word to thwart the devil's crafty twisting of the truth, to quench his temptations, and to turn aside his accusations. And if even the Son of God responds to temptation and to lies in this way, what sort of hope can we have but in the Word of God as our only sure defense? Moses was a great prophet, certainly, but we know that he was not perfect in performing his work in that office. We also need to remember that the word prophet does not mean someone simply who foresees the future. Rather, it really means someone who speaks or who writes to others as God's representative. If that's the prophet's task, then to the extent it is also our task as God's witnesses in the world, we certainly ought to communicate accurately what our Lord Jesus says and what God the Father says and what the Holy Spirit says and gives us to say. And they say this, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And all the law and the prophets testify about me. And the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. Prepare yourself in this coming Advent season for the coming of the perfect prophet. In his holy name, amen.